know, circumstances and situations have a way of testing and revealing who we are and what we actually believe. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I'm fascinated and inspired by Christian martyrs and one of the reasons why I'm less than excited about social media. It's easy to post about positions and belief you hold to virtue signal to others that you are in the right camp, on the right side of history. Usually very little sacrifice is involved with that. Maybe awkward conversations result from it. Martyrs, on the other hand, obviously sacrifice everything for the sake of Jesus. They walk the walk. They put their money where their mouth is. And I'm drawn to martyrs so much that I tried to convince my wife, Hannah, to name our newest daughter after one. Uh, her name is Perpetua, who was a third century North African young mom. She was still fairly new to following Jesus when she was arrested for being a Christian. She refused to recant her faith and had to entrust her baby to a family from the church. And she ended up being executed in a Roman Colosseum with a handful of other Christians. Uh, you can read her journal if you just Google her name. But Hannah wasn't into the uh, name, though. Uh, and I don't know why, because I was really excited about calling her Perp for short, or Perpy, but she was less so for some reason. Uh, we settled on Francis instead, and I had to make do with a reference to St. Francis of Assisi. It's all right. We, uh, we typically think of martyrdom as an ancient phenomenon, uh, but people are still martyred for their faith. Thousands uh, every year are martyred for their faith. Uh, one more uh, modern martyr has been in my mind recently. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor and budding theologian at the same time as Hitler and the Nazi party was slowly but methodically taking control of Germany and twisting it into what we now think of as Nazi Germany. Uh, Christians, both Protestant and Catholic, were largely accepting of Hitler and his Nazi party. The nationalistic and ethnic ideology of the Nazi party infected and eventually dominated the church, usurping the kingship of Jesus, replacing him with Hitler. But a small minority of Christians resisted, setting up underground churches and schools. Bonhoeffer was one of them. As a war was breaking out, he was visiting the U.S. and had the option of staying, already having become like a well-known pastor and scholar. But he refused and headed back to Germany in order to write and teach and preach to clandestine groups of followers of Jesus in Nazi Germany. He was eventually arrested and spent almost two years in a Nazi prison camp. He still wrote he, uh, and he preached to the prisoners. But as the war was winding down with you know, the hope of rescue becoming ever more real as the Allies drew closer and closer, the order was given by one of Nazi Germany's highest officials and Dietrich Bonhoeffer was executed. He has, been, he has become something of a hero and his writings are well respected and re referenced throughout churches. I have a couple of his books on my bookshelf. They've influenced the ways that we as a church approach apprenticeship to Jesus. And that's the story that we have from him, uh, of him from history. And a few weeks before his uh, execution, something we actually think he was aware was going to happen, he wrote this poem. Let me read it to you guys. Who am I? They often tell me. I stepped from my cell's confinement calmly, cheerfully, firmly, 
like a squire from his country house. Who am I? They often tell me. I used to speak to my warders freely and friendly and clearly as though it were mine to command. Who am I? They also tell me I bore the days of misfortune equably, smilingly, proudly, like one accustomed to win. Am I then really that which other men tell of, or am I only what I myself, I myself know of myself? Restless and longing and sick, like a bird in a cage, struggling for breath as though hands were compressing my throat, yearning for colors, for flowers, for the voices of birds, thirsting for words of kindness, for neighborliness, tossing in expectation of great events, powerlessly trembling for friends at an infinite distance, weary and empty at praying, at thinking, at making, faint and ready to say farewell to it all. Who am I, this or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once, a hypocrite before others, and before myself a contemptible woebegone weakling? Or is something within me like a beaten army fleeting in disorder from a victory already achieved? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. Doubt and longing for freedom, discouragement and despair with himself and his circumstances, a, a very real cognitive dissonance, all understandable given his situation. He wasn't some detached caricature of a saint. He wrestled with the idea of who he is. Is he who everyone tells him he is? Is he who think he thinks he is? is? Is it both? Is it neither? And he ends up, and, and he ends, whoever I am, you know, notice he didn't say I know, you know, oh God, I am yours. But uh, listen to this. The day before his execution, this is how a fellow, fellow prisoner described Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer always seemed to me to spread an atmosphere of happiness and joy over the least incident and profound gratitude for the mere fact that he was alive. He was one of the very few persons I have ever met for whom God was real and always near. On Sunday, April 8th, 1945, Pastor Bonhoeffer conducted a little service of worship and spoke to us in a way that went to the heart of all of us. He found just the right words to express the spirit of our imprisonment, the thoughts and the resolutions it had, brought, it had brought us. He had hardly ended his last prayer when the door opened and two civilians entered. They said, prisoner Bonhoeffer, come with us. That had only one meaning for all prisoners, the gallows. We said goodbye to him. He took me aside. This is the end, but for me, it is the beginning of life. The next day, he was hanged in Flossenburg. Happiness, joy, gratitude, God was real and always near to him, encouraging fellow prisoners to the end of his life. Quite a stark difference than Bonhoeffer's own poem. And I've been thinking about Bonhoeffer and this poem off, off and on for the last few months, and as I've seen and participated in a world trying to come to grips with so many things, a global pandemic, economic strain and stress, racial injustice, an election year. Who am I? Who are you? 
Whoever we are, uh, we are not the same people we were back in February of this year. That version of us didn't just navigate its way through all of this. We are different people now. And that's actually nothing new. Change over time is just usually more subtle. If it is jarring, it's jarring for isolated reasons to individuals or small groups of people. This is happening to all of us at the same time. Who are we? This is part two of our vision series for the coming year. And as Josh said last week, this year's vision series seems a lot more foggy and rife with much more uncertainty. It's forcing us also, uh, it's forcing us and also teaching us to hold plans for this next year with an open hand. Um, The vision series is also our time to come together and say, Guys, remember, this is who we are and why we do what we do. And so tonight is our night as a church family to do this. If you're new to Van City, uh, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Even though you don't call Van City your home church or you're not in a Van City community, I think Jesus would really still like to speak to you tonight, so don't tune out. 2020 hasn't been the best year for answering who am I. It's brought more questions than answers, typically. Uncertainty and instability can do that. Careers are generally less stable. Degrees seem a bit outdated or altogether obsolete. Do you still want to be a you know, grade school teacher if it has to be over Zoom? How long will you, as a parent, have to masquerade as a teacher? How do you navigate social dis- distancing and safe practices, especially while being single and depending on relationships outside of your household? And it's also revealed uncomfortable truths about our own shortcomings, how fearful we can be, angry we can be, impatient, untrusting, areas of our lives that we, ha- that we have sectioned off, t- off from Jesus. And all of this is happening within the context of our entire lives. You know, the beauty and brokenness of it all, the joy and the trauma intermixed throughout the lives that we are all navigating through and with Jesus. Instability, uncertainty, stress. Uh, I mean, it calls into question a lot. Sometimes for the better, a lot of times in in painful and unwanted ways. And so we sit with ourselves and wonder, who am I now? And couple all of that uncertainty with the labeling and identity statements that are permeating our cultural landscape, I can't think of any other time in in my life, all 32 years of it, I'm old and ancient, where there's been more of a drive to speak identity over yourself and or over other people in so many ways all at once. I mean, you could be defined as an anti-masker, pro-vaxxer, anti-racist, pro-Trump Democrat who's anti-abortion, or you could be defined as a pro-masker, anti-vaxxer, patriot prayer member, anti-Trump Republican who is pro-choice, or a myriad of combinations of taglines defining who you are. And once you've embraced those identities, you look to gather with like-minded people around you, insulated by social media algorithms that feed you only what you want to hear. And then the, 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 uh, the identity group of your choosing moves as a chaotic mob to demonize those identifying themselves as other than you. The problem with that isn't just that it's annoying or ridiculous or what people will say a danger to democracy. 
The problem is that those labels try to get you to answer the question of who am I in a way that is not based on who you actually are fundamentally. The problem is that God, in Jesus, has gone to extreme lengths to transform your identity. He then worked very hard to teach you that identity and what it is now, who you really are, the most important things about you. And spoiler alert, it's not what ideologies you embrace and even flaunt on social media. It's not the categories that people put you in or the career paths and aspirations you have. Here is something that is true of you. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Adopted into God's family. You have received God's spirit and are led by him, not into fear, but into family. Adopted to sonship. That's not Paul excluding women in any way, quite the opposite. His society, uh, in his society, sons had standing and, standing and daughters did not. Paul is actually usurping that injustice by saying men and women are adopted into God's family on equal standing. There is no second-class children in God's family. We are brought into this relationship with the Creator God where He is our Abba, our Father. We are His kids. One family, brothers and sisters, that is what is true of you. And the scriptures are full of these sorts of statements about who you really are, but it's really easy to see and experience that one of the biggest challenges is living as if those are true. I don't always live my life as if I'm empowered by God's spirit to overcome temptation. I make decisions that grieve God's spirit. I don't always live as if God is a trustworthy, loving father. I grasp for control and try to create my own bubble of safety and comfort. I don't always treat people around me, my, my family, my friends, let alone my enemies, as if they are valuable, important sons and daughters of God Most High. I don't always live life as if I'm important to God, instead living as if I'm fairly inconsequential and unimportant to Him. Am I composed of my failures? Am I composed of my successes? Who am I? Something we wrestled through and are, still are in some ways is the value of doing community in a less than ideal way. So Zoom calls, you know, uh, socially distanced outside community meetings or at a park and, you know, no food together or maybe at best bring your own dinner. Whatever, however you're meeting as your Van City community. Are we just fulfilling a religious obligation or is community worth it when it's over Zoom? Is it worth it when it's not normal or ideal? Is the Sunday gathering, what we're doing tonight, worth it if we're all in masks and have to stay six feet apart and if there's no Van City kids for our children? Those are fair questions. 
But let me say unequivocally that the answer is yes, it's worth it. A resounding yes, especially now, especially when it's difficult. We need community. And when I say that, I don't, I don't mean just a group of people hanging out or on a Zoom call together. I mean people being together intentionally, sharing life intentionally, following Jesus together intentionally. We need that especially now. With a plethora of competing voices and narratives and situations that look to define who we are, when, when the world and the future feels foggy and uncertain, None of that is actually new. It just feels more intense right now. And it's not an accident that we need each other. Jesus designed it that way, that his followers would live with one another in interdependence, that we would need each other, that we would each bring something to the table, but no single person would bring everything. Paul wrote this to a really dysfunctional church in the city of Corinth. Just as a body... Though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body. And then Jesus praying this to the Father. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. That's us. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. And then from the author of Hebrews about meeting together. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Community is a place where we live out who we really are with the help of the people around us. It's a really beautiful and powerful thing. It can be a lot of fun and really invigorating. And I readily confess before you all that uh, I've confessed this before, and I will continue to confess this, that I struggle with the sin of idealism and optimism. And I'm slowly putting those things to death with the help and leading of God's Spirit. And community Zoom calls helped to do that a lot, too. It's important to accept that community isn't where things always look beautiful. And it often doesn't even seem powerful. A Van City community isn't a 10 or so person utopia. It can be painful and messy and annoying and frustrating. Not always, but at times. It can bring out the worst in people at times. But all of that is the part of the reality of community, even, dare I say, part of its design. Bonhoeffer, who did a lot of work on apprenticeship to Jesus and community, wrote this, only that fellowship which faces such disillusionment with all its unhappy and ugly aspects begins to be what it should be in God's sight, begins to grasp in faith the promise that is given to it. The sooner this shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for both. Why would disillusionment be a good thing? Because idealism and optimism about community is only a caricature. And Jesus doesn't reside in the midst of caricatures. He looks to dismantle them with truth. 
idealism about community becomes about fulfilling that ideal about us and ourselves and what, what we get to produce in community. And it's about being comfortable and about checking boxes. And it, it can't be with people as they are. It doesn't allow you to be yourself in all of your failures and shortcomings. It can't tolerate and respond to less than the ideal circumstances. I love and have long been convicted by this Bonhoeffer quote. He says, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than the Christian community itself becomes destroyers of that Christian community even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. Put to death the idealism of community and the people in your community. Because that conception of community and the people you're in community with is a caricature. It's a false promised land. It's ultimately a community that doesn't involve Jesus because it's a fantasy. Community Zoom calls and teaching videos uh, were not what we all signed up for. Um, and what we have now, this isn't even ideal. But it's the best way to remain in community together, living life together, following Jesus together. And so we have the choice to continue to participate in the ways we are allowed to by the health department. Uh, we get to participate in the Sunday gathering, to participate in our Van City communities. We, we take advantage of what we have. Or right now, we have a chance to step into or renew our, our participation in those things. And what we have, whether over Zoom calls or in person, is the ability to participate in what God is doing in us and in each other. We get to participate in this reality of who I am and who you are, and it becomes more and more tangible. It becomes more and more of our lived experience. We, we need each other to participate in order to do this. And to participate in community, I think these three ideas help us to get a picture of what participation looks like. Presence, awareness, and acceptance. To participate, you need to be present. Show up, don't flake out. You gotta prioritize community and be consistent with it. In person or Zoom, be there. But physical or virtual presence isn't enough. You need to be there mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Everyone at times is distracted or tired or has kids running around keeping them busy. That's my season of life. Or at times is frustrated with someone in their community. But don't use those things as an excuse to just sit there zoning out to be a shell of a person or to sit there looking at the clock every five minutes, counting down the time until it's finished. That's not participating in what God is up to. That's begrudgingly fulfilling an obligation. And resist the temptation to go through the motions in order to check off the box of community. And to participate, you also need acceptance. Accept the people for who they are. See them as they are, not as you'd like them to be or wish them to be. It's easy to idealize people, and then you become absolutely crushed when they fall short of that ideal. Learn to love them as they are right now. 
They're good and they're bad. They're beauty and ugliness, strengths and weaknesses. And, and please double check to make sure you don't think loving them is glossing over their sin or shortcomings. That's not love, that's idealism. Love them as they are, as our King Jesus has commanded us to do. But also learn to accept your group as it is, this collection of people in your life. Nobody's Van City community is exactly how they want it to be. Not, not everyone loves the same food for dinner. People have different preferences about the amount of rigidity, the schedule, and the flow of the community night should have. There will be things that are annoying about it. And resolve yourself to be okay with those things. Maybe a lot of those kind of things. But please don't think that acceptance is fatalistic. An attitude of, well, that's just the way things are. What can I do? Acceptance is only one piece of this idea of participation. Without it, you will very easily drift into idealism. And this last piece uh, to this idea of participation is awareness. And specifically, I mean awareness of what God is up to. It's the thing that kills any fatalism about the way things are. It's a sort of situational, moment-by-moment -moment awareness. And it starts with the belief that God is here, here, right now. And with that belief, then comes the conviction that God is up to something right now. Not that everything that happens is what God wants to happen, but that even in the worst or most difficult situations or moments, that God is present and doing stuff in you, in the people around you, in your group as a whole. You can just pray this simple question under your breath, Jesus, what are you doing right now? But don't read into this uh, sort of like mystical, esoteric spirituality like you're far detached from everything happening. Um, last week at my community, it looked like me grabbing my one-year-old, uh, who was almost Perpetua, but is Francis, my one-year-old, pretending she was some sort of monstrous creature and chasing the other six kids around in a big field so part of our community could do the practices with, with less interruptions. Not very mystical of me. But that's what I felt maybe God wanted me to do in the moment to participate with him in what he was wanting to do. And, and all of this together, uh, presence, acceptance, and awareness allows us to then participate with God and what he's up to. And what he's up to in me and in the people around me. What he, what he wants to do through us. It grounds in the tangible reality of community who I am and who you are and transforms us to think and act and live in line with it. And we get to use our words and, and our silence and our body language, our prayers and the stuff that we bring to community, community to say in essence, remember, you are a child of God. I am. I'm a child of God. You have God's spirit in you. So do I. We have the same father who we can both go to and trust. God loves you and God loves me too. One of, uh, I think, the most significant moments of someone speaking over me and who I am 
in my life happened years ago and came to mind as I was writing this teaching this week. Um, but some context is needed. So uh, my dad was really bad. Like, I think in every way a dad could be bad, he was that. He wreaked havoc and trauma and then abandoned my family, you know, my, mom, my mom, me, and my two older sisters when I was eight, and we haven't seen him since. And I guess you could say I, 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 haven't had, I didn't have uh, an easy childhood. And when I was like 11 or 12, I had a trusted adult tell me, listen, you're probably going to turn out like your dad. And I'm pretty sure he intended it to motivate me not to be be like my dad. Uh, But what it did was put this huge burden on me from that moment that terrorized me, that, that caused me to live in terror that at some point, some irresistible power was going to grab a hold of me and force me into the same choices and behaviors as my dad. And as I got older and became an adult, a part of me dreaded and was really scared to be around kids. That's that's the context where my dad had failed. And apparently that would be the context that would ruin me as well. It wasn't easy, It it was hard. So I got married and got fairly close to all of my in-laws. My wife, Hannah, has uh, sisters who had kids. And, and all of a sudden, I had these kids and I re- that I really loved. I really cared about them. And I really wanted to be a good uncle to them. But that like dread and that fear, that terror was ever-present. Both sisters know the story of my childhood. I'm fairly certain that they didn't know to the extent of my fear or dread, but they knew the gist. And I remember them both saying just so matter-of-factly, and it was just so simple. It was just, you're a good guy. We trust you with our kids. And maybe for the first time in my life, I had heard that. And from people who knew me and knew about my dad, how bad of a guy he was. When they said those things, something like lifted up. I like, I was lighter. I guess um, maybe the language I could use is Jesus used them to speak against a lie I had believed and to speak who I really am. I wasn't all better or all fixed in that moment. Uh, Years of counseling and continuing to be around people who know me and to be intentionally a part of community has continued healing and speaking truth against all sorts of lies I believe. I've had help to understand and believe who I am. But that that one moment, that was such a significant moment and has in part freed me up to be a a dad to my girls that is not burdened by fear or dread. Not every moment of being in community is or should be that impactful or transformative for your life. It's usually more subtle than that. Usually happens over a long period of time. But this is the way that Jesus has designed community to work. To participate takes intentionality. 
thoughtfulness, effort. You're not just a group of people hanging out, even if there is no practice to do. Your time together is still an opportunity to participate in what God is up to, even in unstructured moments, even without a practice. But the resolve to be present and aware and accepting can drift and soften over time. An effective way to remind yourselves to approach your time as a community with intentionality is to use a sort of ritual, a reminder of sorts. So this week, you'll get together with your Van City community and work through a practice that will be a guided discussion. One part of the discussion as a community will be to come up with a ritual or rituals to make your time together uh, as intentional. If you can recall the practice of Sabbath from the beginning of the year, I know that feels like five years ago, but we did do a practice on the Sabbath in the beginning of this year. Think of it sort of like how we encourage people to have a ritual that marks the start of Sabbath and, and the end, like lighting a candle or reading a psalm. And in a similar way, choose a ritual that you all know signifies your desire to be intentional with your time and to participate in what God is up to. The other part of the discussion you will have is to foster an atmosphere of vulnerability and openness through prayer. Your community isn't your therapist there to process all of your life trauma. It's not your life coach helping you organize your life and come up with action plans. That's what life coaches do, right, Tab? Yeah? Okay. Well, if it was a no, then I'm too late. Great. It's probably not a group of your besties that you talk with endlessly about your life, but it definitely is a place to pray. It can be a place to talk about and then pray through trauma you're struggling with. Been there, done that with my community. A place to talk about and then pray through struggles and hurdles in your life. Been there, done that with my community, a place to talk about and then pray as you process what's happening in your life. And prayer is great in that it helps diffuse our urge to fix a situation for someone or to spin everything in a positive way in a feeble attempt to help the person feel better. Prayer is an acknowledgement that we need Jesus' help in all of this, that he's present that he is up to something, and that he's available to hear us and respond to us. One of the ways we want to, you to foster an environment like this is to have somebody take on a new role in the community that we're officially creating right now. We want communities to have a prayer lead, just like they have a mission lead or a communication lead. We want each community to have somebody that has the responsibility to stop the group and say, hey, we should pray right now for this person or for that situation, or to text the group throughout the week to remind them to be praying for someone or something. The exact details and responsibilities of the prayer lead might vary from community to community, but will help guide that discussion so that your group can develop the role in a way that works for your particular group. And with all of this, with all of this, Vision Series 2020. I just have no idea what this next year for our church and our Van City communities is going to bring. I wish I did. It would be nice, but I don't. What I do know is that whatever happens, oh God, we are yours.
spend a, t- a little bit of time praying together and listening for God's Spirit. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.